Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Prestige Bald Move podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a commission uh, for the 1993 movie True Romance, a crime thriller drama uh, directed by Tony Scott, who has done a lot of action films in his career. Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop, Days of Thunder, Last Boy Scout, Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, Man on Fire. Uh, it was written by one Quentin Tarantino. This was his second Hollywood project after he wrote and directed um, Reservoir Dogs. And I hear he wrote and this before he directed Reservoir Dogs. I think that is that is the and he kind of got like jaded of uh, with directing or like bored yeah. with the idea of it and just wanted to tell stories. And we know eventually that turned back around. But right. uh, this time I will say that. Uh, one of my big questions going in is like, how much of a Quentin Tarantino film is this going to feel like? This feels like a Quentin Tarantino film. Surprisingly. Like, yeah. The only yeah. thing it's missing is that sort of nonlinear um, storytelling of like a pulp fiction, right? Which I hear uh, and I, is in the original script. And then they, they changed it when, when Tony Scott yeah, took over the project. Tony's like, I don't want a time machine to tell this story. I just want to tell the story. No, it, it's interesting how, much of a mold that script is when yeah. you pour the movie gelatin in, it comes out looking like a Quentin Tarantino film. I, th- I thought that was crazy. And, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, we will. This movie s- stars so many people. <laughs> it is crazy to see the, 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 the stars of this movie and where they're uh, ended up now. Christian Slater heads the film as Clarence Worley. Uh, of course, bald move uh, audiences will recognize him from Mr. Robot. And lately pump up the volume we did earlier this year, mm-hmm. Patricia Arquette as Alabama Whitman. Uh, I've seen her in Ed Wood um, and a couple of TV shows before Dennis Hopper shows up as Clarence's dad. Of course, you'll recognize Dennis Hopper from speed, easy rider. Of course, super Mario brothers, the movie, uh, of course, <laughs> Val Kilmer shows up as Elvis, although he's not credited mm. because the Elvis estate said, absolutely not. We do not want her name attached to this film. Uh, Val Kilmer also in Top Gun, the saint, the biopic, the doors. And it, it makes Oldman. me wonder what they would have said in like 1997 about attaching Elvis to a Quentin Tarantino movie. That is a very good question. Uh, Gary Oldman shows up in this, a very minor Dude. but memorable role. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know him from Fifth Element, Nolan, Bat, Batman movies, Leon the Professional. Uh, Brad Pitt slums in this movie as like a high roommate, and he's very enjoyable. Christopher Walken walks on set to do one memorable Sicilian speech mm-hmm. with Dennis Hopper. Uh, Bronson Pinchot, Pinchot, uh, Cousin Balky of Perfect Strangers fame. Might remember that reference if you're a Leftovers fan mm-hmm. or a Gen Xer like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson cruises by this movie for a bit. Michael Rappaport, 13 year old Michael Rappaport, is in this movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he, he's not that young, but oh, oh my God, he looks like he's that <laughs> okay. young. He looks like he's that young. Um, I wasn't certain for this, a second. I'm like, boy, he's tall, but maybe. <laughs> he's very young looking, right? Yeah. Saul Rubinek, the collector of wild datas from Star Trek The Next Generation. James Gandolfini mm-hmm. is a young ass. James Gandolfini is a memorable part of this movie. And then Tom Sizemore, who you'll remember from Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man, Natural Born Killers, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, uh, pops in late in this movie as a detective. Jim, this movie was uh, commissioned by Dina. Uh, we're going to get to her comments or their comments in a minute. Uh, I've never seen this movie. 
I have dimly recall it being one of those uh, few Quentin Tarantino written but not directed films. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of been always like, "Eh, I should probably check that out. This is a great opportunity. Um, And it really surprised me is how much it felt much more like a Quentin Tarantino film than it felt like a Tony Scott one. What did you think of this film? True Romance. Uh, I like most of this movie. I think it starts off pretty shaky for me. Um, the, the believability, I guess at at the beginning of this movie is a little spotty for me, but then like once this movie settles into what it is, which is essentially just a, a criminal who's being chased by the criminals and the cops, I feel like the movie works really well. Um, I think there there are some problematic scenes in this movie. It's in tough. A Quentin Tarantino film, really, Jim. <laughs> I don't some problematic know stuff, huh? Where the line? I don't know where to draw the line on. Like, this is a guy who is writing these characters who are bad people who are going to say bad things, um, and where where authorial intent comes in essentially like what is Quentin Tarantino trying to say with any of this so I give a lot of it a pass um, but it it made me very uncomfortable watching it in places so I don't know it's not down to the violence it's down to like the language they use and the way that the language is used because I don't have a lot of problem with it in stuff like Pulp Fiction Um, I think Mm -hmm. it's less offensive in Pulp Fiction than it is here but I, I don't know overall I like the movie I think that's the style of the movie is actually really, really cool. And it is that Tarantino feel, right? Like there's a lot of cool action stuff. There is a lot of scenes where people are just sitting and talking and the dialogue is so smooth that you're just engrossed in the scene. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I it's so interesting to see all of the proto Tarantino stuff here, like the shape of the dialogue, uh, like the Saul Rubinet character reminded me so much of the bathrobe uh, wearing world weary drug dealer in Pulp Fiction. I just can't believe Tar- or that the uh, someone's going to bring a you know, a person as a, 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 what do you call it? A candy popper, candy sniffs, someone who can't handle their highs at his doorstep while he's just trying to eat cereal and watch movies at night. Um, it's also extremely uh, autobiographical. Like Christian Slater is playing Quentin Tarantino of this era at the beginning of this movie. And it's like, what if Quentin Tarantino was sure. drop dead good looking and also something of a, a capable of being a cr- criminal mastermind. It's not what he is, but he's capable of being <laughs> it. Like, I feel like there's a lot of uh, Tarantino self insert, especially in this guy's love of movies, particularly his love of Sony, uh, Sonny Chiba, uh, like martial arts flicks. Um, and it's funny because 10 years later, he would cast him as uh, uh, Hattori Hanzi. What is the guy's name that made all the blades in, in Kill Bill? Hattori Hanzo, I think is. Han- yeah. Yeah, he he put his uh, his uh, kung fu star in a, in a major American movie. Um, but it's interesting. Like, yeah, how much the the dialogue crackles like a tarantino and i guess that's expected Um, well some of it is directly lifted or not lifted but you're going to see it one year later exactly mirrored in pulp fiction like there's this this scene where he's talking to 
someone and trying to convince them of something and he's like do i look like a, a beautiful blonde with big tits and an ass tastes like french vanilla ice cream and guy's like yeah. what and he repeats it and then he says yeah. well why are you trying to uh, tell me all this bullshit right this is the exact does he look like a bitch scene from pulp fiction right 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 and he also lifts i guess a couple of lines from uh um reservoir dogs as well mm-hmm. so there's a little bit of like self-referential but yeah it's just interesting to see all the pieces and like quentin tarantino's love of mixing sex and violence and gendered violence in problematic areas uh his playing with like racist dialogue you know like uh having a Mm -hmm. white guy drop the in bomb and i'm like that's that's an interesting question because you said like it's less offensive than in and uh pulp fiction and i'm 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 curious to know why because like i was trying to figure that that too like is it more offensive for a person to use racist language with the point of it being that it's only effective yeah if like you are a racist racist. yeah you're only offended by it if you don't like black people yeah it's it's like if someone sprayed me with bug spray, I'd be like, what's up, bro? But I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't call it a murder attempt because bug spray doesn't work on me. My biochemistry works differently. I have an endoskeleton. Right. You know? Yeah. Like it's, it's not going to kill. But like if you spray it on a spider, they'd fucking like, you know, explode or whatever. And like, that's the thing. It's like, well, this target, this is a racist tirade, but only works on you if you are deeply racist itself. So it's like exactly versus. Quentin Tarantino's just casual white boy racism and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's it's interesting, and of course, I'm not the ultimate judge and arbiter of all that. So yeah. Uh, shall shall we get to Dina's comments about True Romance, and then we'll start talking about the movie? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, they say True Romance is my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, though it's one of the three movies he wrote but did not direct. Uh, included in this list is Natural Born Killers and From Dust to Dawn. Uh, like many others, I did not watch it in the theater when it was first released, but waited until after seeing 1992's Reservoir Dogs. And then I spent the rest of my college years quoting this movie. I like you, Clarence. Always have, always will. Okie dokie, doggy daddy. It ain't white boy day, is it? Don't condescend me, man, and so on. Some topics you might find interesting to discuss. Tarantino said the Sicilian scene. Well, actually, let's let's get to this after. I, I like to take the, the, these these points after we talk, because who knows? Some of the stuff might come up organic. Okay. Um, but we will we will come back uh, to talk about these these points. But thank you. Thank you for your support, Dina. I uh, really appreciate uh, you taking the, the big ticket commission uh, and uh, also went, uh, appreciate you working with us. So we went back and forth. That's part of the commission process. A little mini ad here is when you plunk down your money, we work with you and like, what do you want us to do? It's like, OK, well, here's what we think of that. And I think originally they, they wanted us to do uh, like a animated DC like a couple episodes like I don't know if that's going to fly with Jim and even me and then they want us to do Wonder Woman like good news we already did a Wonder Woman podcast Mm -hmm. and then we finally you know sometimes takes a little back and forth to find the right project because you want to make sure the people are happy you know you don't want to commission us to watch two hours of cartoons and a shit on it so uh, this 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 is a good pick uh, because like you I I knew that this was Quentin Tarantino I had not seen it Um, but I like some of the other movies of Quentin Tarantino wrote but didn't direct like natural born killers uh there's one other that i can't remember what it is but yeah th- this is a pretty good pick yeah um the uh, maybe i can start with the only thing i don't like well the most prominent thing i don't like about this film the soundtrack man 
This is where it does not feel like a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack because if Quentin Tarantino had done the soundtrack, it'd be fucking cool. Yeah. This, the unfortunate Clarence theme sounds like something that Phil Collins would come up with for Tarzan, the animated Disney movie for like when the monkeys are (laughs) fucking around like light, light hijinks in the people's camp. Like, you know, they're putting the the bedpan on, on their head and wearing as a hat and they're doing all, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's that kind of like caper music and it underpins emotionally searing dialogue between a father and a, a disappointing son. Mm-hmm. It underscores emotional dialogue between a man and a woman that think they're about to die. It under, it's crazy how much this <laughs> fucking weird high jinxy jungle music is underneath <laughs> this movie. What the fuck? It's hilarious that you say Tarzan because in my notes I put it's the Lion King plus flutes and a xylophone. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's bizarre. This is as as bizarre a choice as the Bloodsport music. I just I just don't get it, Hans. At least that was of an era like that kind of bluesy Uh synth jazzy stuff was kind of in a lot of different things. This is just and the only thing it even close to comes close to fitting under is the very final scene, which is right. You know, a happy ending and it kind of befits the, the, the movie, but uh, yeah, it's um, wild. There I'm, are some, some like Quentin Tarantino esque nods to some older music, right? Like that Chantilly lace song is in there. There's um, some Elvis, I think at one point being sung. Though maybe not I don't by think Elvis. They, maybe I, not, because I don't think that they wanted to have, a, I guess, a Elvis, like this was supposed to be like uh, Lilo and Stitch, have a very heavy yeah. Elvis soundtrack, which would have honestly fit the movie pretty great. It um, might be Val again, Kilmer. They just couldn't. Singing, singing an Elvis song. It might be. Val Kilmer was Elvis, right? Um, and as, as, we, as we mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the but they couldn't credit him as Elvis, and they couldn't get the uh-huh. rights to any music. So maybe he did Maybe he did sing something about blue suede shoes or something. But uh, <laughs> Maybe. Um, there's an Aerosmith song in this, which I, I think is a banging Aerosmith song. It doesn't really strike me as Tarantino, but yeah, it's a good song. Yeah. If Tarantino were making this film, the soundtrack would have been killer, and the movie would be even better. Uh, maybe before we yeah. get in heavy spoilers, that's something we usually do, especially on a movie that probably a lot of people haven't seen. We should kind of like describe to you what this movie is about. Uh, this is a film about uh, a man who's kind of shiftless. He works for a video store. He's a big, big fan of martial arts movies and has an encyclopedic knowledge of film. Uh, his boss takes pity on him one night because he's such a shut in and a loser character, even though he's played by Christian Slater. And he hires him a prostitute to go to his movie hangout and just essentially give him a good date. And she does. But in talking, uh, he finds out that she's not really happy with her lot in life. She's just just getting started in this whole call girl escapade. And also there's a simultaneous uh, chance to steal like a million dollars of drugs mm-hmm. by wiping out her pimp. And that then leads them across the country with uh, mafioso in tow the DEA in hot pursuit. It's, 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 it's a classic Tarantino, Tarantino kind of criminal screwball, dark comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, that's like a lot of his movies work on that principle. And, uh, yeah, you that's, said that's the movie. Something interesting, which is a, a point of confusion for me in this movie. Now I, I don't All like, right. I don't much care for the main, uh, female protagonist in this movie. I think, Miss Arquette? 
she doesn't Alabama. have really anything to do in this movie once they get the cocaine. And that's kind of a shame. Um, but, but also, so, so there's a, a point of confusion is, did she intend for him to steal this cocaine or did she just want her stuff back and he accidentally stole the cocaine? Hmm. I don't think she, I don't know because that's, that's, I, I was trying to, I was right, wrote off her character as kind of like, um, you know, a very simple minded, passive, um, just kind of like let things happen to her, zero agency having character. But then something late in the film happens to where, she kind of gets equal stake in the movie. Like, you know, regardless of how she felt about the decisions made, she definitively comes out in favor of the Claire, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, takes her lumps as, as, as she's required to do so by the film. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, she is like literally written as a male fantasy. She's this like blonde bimbo that thinks everything that this nerd is into is super cool. Like you're just so cool. And then he's inspired by the shit that he's, I guess, picked up in the movies and by osmosis from his old man cop it, to just in, like run roughshod over the vast criminal enterprises, you know, both in Hollywood and on the East Coast. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. This character is in the mold of like, if you think of characters that like Brittany Murphy has played and maybe not quite as dark as some of her stuff um, or mm-hmm. like a Zoe Deschanel could probably nail this character too, kind of in that mold. Um, She's not a manic pixie dream girl. She's a manic bimbo dream girl. Yeah. Yeah, really. She is maybe Uh, depressive. The, the, my least favorite part (laughs) of this movie, because I like a ton about this movie, but my least favorite part of this movie is the beginning of it. I don't think that this love interest thing that they set up here, I wasn't buying it. It happened too fast with not enough uh, detail. And, they need it to happen fast because it's a two hour movie already and you don't really want to spend another 10 minutes in a slow part of the film, but I just wasn't buying it. It happened too quickly. Yeah, it's just, it's a very old story hook. Like one of my favorite Tom Clancy novels was written around the same time. Actually, the timing might be suspicious. So without remorse has the same basic plot of a guy who picks up uh, essentially a call girl with a heart of gold finds out she's mm-hmm. in some kind of bullshit dangerous, you know, she turns out uh, uh, pimping and prostitution. It's, it's not great. Um, and he decides that it's not enough for her to get out of an escape from that life. He needs to go back and do, you know, he, it's, it's like this guy, like uh, the fact sure. that this guy who slapped her once is breathing the same air is offensive to him as a man. So he's going to embroil her in danger and all this as a way to show how much she loves. And she, and, but, and she, eats it up like you know because again she's not a real character so much as just an avatar for like uh quentin tarantino's wish fulfillment you know he i mean Mm -hmm. like i said i keep coming back to like uh this is this 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 character is essentially the quentin tarantino character from pulp fiction he's the guy that sits around on the couch uh and he watches tv and movies and except for in this film he mounts up with jules and vincent and does crime mm-hmm. does crime better than them. It turns out because <laughs> he's just smarter and cooler than them. And whether that yeah. works or not, I, I, I don't know because to me, this guy, like I think it's part of the joke of the film is this guy is real stupid. 
he's low on brains, an abundance of balls. And because of these weird waves of interference, crime interference of like the DEA after him, the mafia after him, like stuff that he, all he could conceive is this small time pimp, you know, and this big score. And he has no idea the other forces are reigns against him. And they kind of come together to cancel each other out. And he yeah. ends up winning, not because he's cool and smart, just because everything else outmaneuvered the, the, each other. Yeah. And they said all. You know, they they set him up pretty well for for me to understand like what kind of mentality he has that live you know live fast, die young, leave a good looking looking corpse kind of thing. That is who he is throughout this movie. Um, I guess like there's there's some disconnect here because I don't necessarily look at him as this huge loser. I and that might just be a product of a what i do with my life i don't think i'm a huge loser but i sit around <laughs> watching television and a lot of comic book movies and then talking about them on the internet uh but b i think you know sensibilities around that have changed right you don't working at a comic book store for four years doesn't make you the world's biggest loser it actually might make you kind of kind of an interesting cool person to talk to for a little while it makes you eligible to have a fantastic hollywood career in directing and writing it turns out exactly so i yeah somewhere Along the way, the sensibilities didn't match up with what I think nowadays. But in 93, yeah, you were probably a loser if you were sitting around reading comic books and working at a store for four years. Well, I saw that there was a kind of debate about uh, from the producers and a director and casting about like, you know, is, you know, uh, Christian Slater too good looking for this role? Because the film is about like they 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 some people put forth uh, Steve Buscemi to play the role. Uh, there is some debate within the like. Yeah, because I think the movie is painting him aggressively as a loser. Like you work for this uh, weird comic book movie shop and you never get out to the extent that your boss, who is your manager at the comic book store, who is by extension also a loser, is buying you a call girl so that you feel less pathetic. You're not going to tell you he's just going to have you meet cute. And it's it's, that's the other thing is like the meet cute is the most ridiculous thing in the world. The fact that Mm -hmm. like. You know, like, oh, yeah, this girl spills popcorn in your middle of your Kung Fu fest and it comes home and fucks you. It was like, obvious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it should have man. You're getting worked. Yeah. At least it was to me. As soon as she spilled the popcorn, I was like, oh, this is a setup. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of like, you know, Quentin Tarantino self-referential things, not even self-referential, but like there is elements of the Buffalo Bill. Uh, I'd fuck me speech with his fixation on like, I'm not gay or anything, but if I had to fuck a dude, I'd definitely fuck Elvis mm-hmm. like that whole extended thing. Uh, you know, the riffing on the Sonny Chiba stuff. Like there's definitely uh, where you can tell that Quentin has seen a lot of movies and he wants you to know how many movies he's seen sure. uh, by, by his script. Can we talk about Gary Oldman's character? Okay. Yeah. Apparently, uh, Tony Scott met with him to recruit him for the film, and he asked, uh, he asked Gary, "Hey, have you read the part yet?" And Gary's like, "Nah," because he's on the fence about taking it, and you know, whatever. And he's like, "Yeah, you're this uh, white drug dealer uh, that thinks he's black, and you're a psychopathic pimp." And I guess Gary Oldman laughed and said, "I'll do it." Like sight, sight unseen. Um, <laughs> And I guess his like wardrobe and costuming and all that was just kind of like a free form collaboration with like just himself and the the costuming person. Mm -hmm. And he comes up with he looks he looks like uh, 
the DJ. Do you remember that the DJ from Zoolander, who's played by uh, oh fuck uh, Kevin from The Leftovers, Justin uh, Thoreau? D- Justin Thoreau. He's got this dead-eyed scar, Rastafarian uh, uh, dreadlocks with gold cap teeth. It's an insane, yeah. insane character that he's, that he's he's putting together here. But but the performance is incredible. I mean, Gary Oldman is. You just can't look away from what he's doing on screen here. It's so good. He's so menacing. He's like that. That psychopathy uh, comes through just like immediately. But he doesn't overdo it. Like somehow he doesn't overdo this character. And I don't know how that's possible because the character is overdue. Right. Yeah. It comes out well done. Like, you know, one, right. one more is yeah, off the page. It's it's practically a charcoal briquette and you're going to grill <laughs> it up even further. It's amazing because like you think about so many of his characters, like Gary Oldman's character as the corrupt cop, DEA cop and Leon, the professional yeah. uh, Zorg from fifth, uh, the fifth element. Mm-hmm. Uh, this fucking guy, whatever his name is, uh, uh, he gets a lot of mileage out of playing fundamentally ridiculous characters and then trying to get them to be menacing, trying to turn. And I think he succeeds in most of the movies. I don't know if he quite get there. I love him in fifth element, but I don't know if I quite take Zorg as a threat. Seriously. (laughs) There's always Um, a layer of intelligence to his performance. And that is the key. Like if he doesn't, if he doesn't nail the intelligence in this scene, I don't buy it. If he doesn't nail the intelligence in Zorg, he's just a ridiculous buffoon, right? It, you need that element, and Gary Oldman always brings that. Yeah, there's something to him. Um, and you're right, because there's like this uh, the scene where he's sizing this guy up and inviting him to sit down and eat his food, and he's swinging that that lamp kind of like it's there's yeah. little elements of like a you know, a, a noir film, someone getting interrogated by the cops with the light shining in their face. And he's trying to put the guy like, you know, trying to, f- this is a guy who is n- unknown to the criminal underworld because until Alabama stopped by, he was just living his life in Kung Fu fantasies. And this guy comes out and is like, Oh, he's liberated. This-. He's like, who the, f-? because like, yeah, this guy might actually be dangerous. I can't just assume, but then he starts eating and he, I guess acts accidentally sifts him into the not dangerous bucket. But I'm not sure, like, I, again, like this character of Clarence seems very ridiculous in seat of his pants. Like he only yeah. succeeds because people underestimate him or some bigger fish comes along to distract the other big fish that's after him. And this it's just I don't I don't know, like uh, Gary Oldman miscalculated that he would have a gun on him and uh, that got him that got him killed. Yeah. Um I mean, he yeah, he definitely had his character and his his motivation uh, pinned, right? Like he knew he was here for no good. But yeah, I guess he didn't figure he had that gun. Uh, Clarence is interesting because, yes, he is a, a nerd and he is a loser by the definitions of this movie. But he also has a way with words, but almost almost an accidental way with words, right? He's able mm. to charm Lee, the the movie producer, with his knowledge of film and, and flattery and things, but I don't think he's doing it consciously. Um, but then there are moments where he oh, does do it consciously, yeah. right? Like when he's on the phone with him the first time and Lee's driving down the road and he's using mm-hmm. all of this Dr. Zhivago metaphor um, for yeah. Coke. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that's very intentional and that's very smooth. The other stuff is just like being a fanboy, right? And and having strong opinions on movies yeah, and cinema. And and there's even this weird meta moment where he cuts to him in a bathroom with uh, Elvis, the ghost of Elvis, like uh, counseling him. And he's like, ah, you know, if I, I don't know. I feel like I'm kissing this guy's ass. No, man, you're not kissing his ass. You're being genuine. And that's the difference. But he can tell you're being real. And as, right. as the ghost Elvis is fiddling with his gun and stuff. And it's like the movie itself is having an argument about. Is this working? Mm-hmm. I felt like, and I, like I said, I don't, I did not take Christian Slater's character ser- seriously throughout the whole movie. And uh, yeah. I was just waiting for him to get to the end of his rope. Unfortunately for him in this movie, uh, that just never, that just never happens because there's always a bigger fish to come and kind of bail him out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Every single time. It reminded me a lot of like uh, the other movie, get shorty. You know, where we had another character who's crazy about movies and loves the dialogue and he goes into the Hollywood system. He just buff like because this guy's playing a movie mm. producer and, you know, just kind of buffaloing them with a little bit of criminal in, uh, knowledge and a little bit of street smarts. And the fact that these producers probably kind of wish they were, you know, big shot gangs, you know, like like uh, yeah. th- th- they wanted they were born a generation too late. You know, they can't quite be the. Uh, the titans of industry and and uh, cinema that the the old guys, the old guard, the golden age of Hollywood were. So they're like, you know, you might be able to tempt them to buy two hundred thousand dollars worth of coke <laughs> because mm-hmm. wouldn't that be cool to have at your parties for the next year or two? I, but but like it's it's like um, you know when John Travolta is getting the the advantage over. It's so funny because you, you had another young Gandolfini performance when he's getting yeah. the jump on this guy who's just like a washed up, semi washed up, uh, um, uh, stunt man. It's just not as cool as like you know Michael Corleone, Corleone fighting the other five families mm-hmm. to a standstill in The Godfather's. Right. So sure. I never could quite take this guy seriously because he's just like. This shit shouldn't work. And if ever all the men got in the room that wanted him dead, got in the room and like aligned, he wouldn't be able to stand against any of them. So, mm-hmm. but I think that's part of the farce. Like it is like kind of the same dumb fuck way that Bruce Willis walks out of Pulp Fiction. Like he got lucky, you know? Yeah. Uh, for sure. He got, he got the, he got caught between two cosmic forces. He couldn't understand. And Dave's duped it out and he ended up being the last man standing. Yeah. And it culminates in a truly excellent shootout um, where, yeah, all those elements come into play in a way that feels pretty satisfying. It doesn't feel like it came out of nowhere or like it was forced. Um, Yeah. There are a couple of elements in this movie that I feel are forced, like that fucking roller coaster scene. Mm -hmm. it, it, It was it just like, hey, man, I've done 15 conversations now with people sitting at tables chatting while there's some cool 50s 60s music in the background can i do something more interesting and kinetic what's more kinetic than sitting on a fucking roller coaster and having the conversation on the hill hill ride up like yeah i was wondering because like i was like yeah like i i was trying to think of the reason why they would do that and i was coming up with reasons like well like if they were if you were afraid of being recorded out in public you know if you're like uh you know, uh, Joe Pesci and Casino and you're taking all these, you know, you're trying to keep people from reading your like going and having a business meeting about drugs and whatnot on a roller coaster. I would like to see the FBI tap that could like <laughs> right. make anything of that. You're just screaming. Let, but like 
none of that was in play. They didn't think mm-hmm. they were on the run. They they had no idea that there was anything beyond Gary Oldman in the world, let alone the cops looking after him. In fact, his father, before he died, uh, told him, hey, the cops aren't even looking at any of this. So, um, yeah, it was just to make the scene interesting. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. Fine. And I guess it was because like Michael Rappaport was puking the whole time. Pinson brought uh, the uh, cousin Balky was like uh, having panic attacks and stuff. So it was like a yeah, it was, it was showy. I, I want to talk about the um, the Dennis Hopper stuff. OK. Um, Because I've only seen this movie once. Does it all track through? So, like, are you supposed to understand that Dennis Hopper called up his old cop buddies and they're all on the take and they're giving him bogus information, but also feeding uh, the Christopher Walken, you know, mafioso guys. They're feeding them the right information because something didn't quite track there with him being, you know, because obviously Christian Slater left his fucking driver's license at the scene of the crime and he's holding Mm -hmm. it. So there's no, and I don't think Dennis Hopper would lie to his son. So I think that's what happened. The cops are just dirty and knew enough to tell Dennis Hopper a bullshit story and also to tell Christopher Walken that uh, you need to go see this guy because he's asking up about this crime. Yeah, I mean, I I guess my assumption was like they're just checking. They're doing what cops would do in this scenario and just checking in on the relatives of the guy. I don't know how they get that information necessarily uh, in 93, but I, that was my assumption. You might be right, though, because that would be tough. Yeah, I think that um, uh, I guess I'm a man inside. And that's the, that's the thing that's yeah. the smoking gun is that like he told they told because clearly any cop would know that like, oh, yeah, the guy that was killed had this guy's driver's license clutched in his fist. Like, well, I assume they got to the scene before the cops did. And took the driver's license. Oh, I guess either way. Yeah, I guess either way works. Hand. Yeah, I guess either way works. Either they're like, you know, got contacts within the cops that are working with them, or like you said, they just got there first and did their own investigation. Interesting. Um, so let's talk about uh, you know, um, there's some fucked up shit like Dennis Hopper, like he, uh, Alabama full mouth kisses him Mm uh like there's uh, all kinds of weird shit happening um but uh then they go away on their honeymoon and he's visited by christopher walken who identifies i think he's a consigliere of some big swinging dick mafia guy uh that they've stole like a million dollars worth of coke from accidentally um this is i guess according to quentin tarantino the movie that he was most proud the 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 scene that he's most proud of writing until he got to the Hans Landa scene from uh, you know the the, the beginning of uh, Inglorious Bastards, you know hmm. uh, his his interrogation of the French milk farmer and his family. Sure, uh, <laughs> it is interesting because it's Christopher Walker Walken. Uh, you know he's he's got two gears like a buffoon and then dead serious. Yeah, uh, kind of slightly askew guy. And he's playing that role and he's very dangerous and not to be fucked with. Um, what do you think? What do you think of the scene? We, we you talked about this, this scene and it being uncomfortable and all that. Let's let's get into it. Yeah, this is a very racist scene and. We'll get to that. I want to talk about Christopher Walken specifically in this scene, because a lot yeah. of this dialogue, I mean, Tarantino writes a lot of dialogue, right? 
Um, sure. And a lot of the time, people are blitzing through that dialogue. But I feel like Christopher Walken has a way of bulldozing through dialogue that might disappoint a writer. He doesn't linger on the places in the dialogue where you might want him to, to, to menace. Mm. And he does more of the menacing with the way he's looking at you and less about what he's saying to you. And I, mm-hmm. it, it works, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of dialogue in here that I think could be really good and, and more prominent, I guess, in the hands of a different actor. But hmm. Christopher Walken nails it. I mean, he, he, he doesn't need the dialogue to bring the menace to the scene. It's just him. Yeah, because he has that kind of like dead-eyed look to him and... There's something interesting in the Dennis Hopper where he's playing like a guy who thinks he might be able to talk himself into there's like some kind of gap between giving his son up and surviving. And then there's clearly a line that's crossed where he's like, oh, this isn't this. No, I, I can't do it. So he just switches into there's a part in the Game of Thrones books that they never touched within the show because they, they got they wrote Stannis out early. But Stannis is uh, burning a bunch of people. You know, a bunch of his of of his prisoners alive to to uh, to to charge to, to charge up Melisandre and and her Lord of Light powers. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys, one of the Northerners, who's next up on the like, you know, as he's being led to the to the torch, he just starts insulting the breeding and and and, and uh, parentage of his captors, and like says these incredibly offensive things. And the guy ends up beheading him because he's just so fucking tired of his shit and you know the how offensive he's being mm-hmm. and i felt like this is exactly the same scene that like he knows yeah. he's going to die christopher walk is the type of guy that can make that exit excruciatingly painful and long lasting um you know kind of like uh uh the, the, the character in pulp fiction he's going to get right. medieval on your ass right <laughs> mm-hmm. but instead he just does this and again this is a very racist tirade but Mm -hmm. is dennis hopper's character racist or does he just know that these mobster guys are super fucking racist and he can guarantee himself a a quick but but there's also like if he miscalculates and he gets special thought but walking plays right (laughs) in his hands like that's the thing like i kept on waiting for like what is the payoff for this thing because like walking is having of he's like oh you are talking your ass into some crazy shit like mm-hmm. having to go, oh, can you believe this guy? And and Hopper just keeps on pouring it on and pouring it on. And he's laughing because of how, and he just gets shot in the face. Like yeah. he pulled off the game of Thrones strategy. He, he avoided, mm-hmm. he avoided a hellacious torture by, I, I don't know. I thought walking was, I thought walking was going to really put the screws to him, but he doesn't. Yeah, no, I think he got, he got him right. Like he, he won that exchange in as much as your own death can be considered winning the exchange. Um, because yeah. I think I think the moment that that scene flipped to where Hopper wasn't getting out of it is the mm-hmm. moment where he tries to lie the first time, and Christopher Walken says, "Nah, you're you're lying to me, right?" Um, he already knows that he's lying to him. There is no amount of like resetting that he can do here. The only thing he can do now is push it beyond, uh, you know, torture into instant death, and he he does it. He wins. Yeah. That's such, such a brilliant hallmark of uh, Tarantino's writing is he's got the, he gives uh, Walken the 17 pantomime speech, you know, like uh, Sicilians were the greatest liars ever. And, you know, men's got 17 tells 17 pantomimes and give them away. Women have 20. And that that's the 
the key thing is dialogue is he throws in the idea of like, oh, women actually have an additional ways. To and he doesn't be he doesn't get into it. It's just he right. throws out this other almost piece of world building or lore. I find that stuff really fascinating. It's not he's not going to be expand on it. It's just it just exists to prop up the 17 pantomimes because that's probably something he just makes shit up. You oh, know, sure. Um, like I I've always wondered why Quentin Tarantino misquotes the Bible. Uh, that Ezekiel, whatever the, the the speech that Jules gives, uh, yeah. and I found in my research for this movie, it's because there's a Sonny Chiba movie that starts off with this fictitious quote from Ezekiel. Of course, um, there is. And Quentin Tarantino, and, and so Quentin Tarantino, his research, I think all of Quentin Tarantino's research is just watching movies. Oh yeah. So like this, seventeen pantomimes is bullshit, and he throw, but he throws on the like, oh, but women have twenty, as if it's like a science. Mm-hmm. That there's more to. I don't know. I feel like there's something about the specific, the specificity of his dialogue that that makes it seem grander than it actually is. And then you just add all the the racist shit to debate the Sicilians <laughs> into killing him, right? Um, but I don't know. Like this is something that's been talked about since Quentin Tarantino's been writing movies. Like, is this shit racist? Does it support rape? I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like I said, I think there's interpretations either way. It's same thing with about his violence, and increasingly, like people lost a shit about the violence against women in, uh, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood. But I'm like, well, the thing is, is these women are themselves predators. Sure. That's the thing that like, uh, like I, and I was wondering as was, I was watching Patricia Arquette, just getting the shit beat out of her by, um, uh, Tony Soprano by James Gandolfini. And I'm thinking, Man, this is kind of uncomfortable because unlike the cult leaders who, you know, are just as capable of cutting up people and killing them as the the women in the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this this woman doesn't seem like she's signed up for any of this shit. But then then she fucking fights back with the corkscrew and mm-hmm. the toilet lid and the flamethrower. And it's like, OK, you're back on to dealing with a dangerous animal that, you know, I, I, I that kind of justifies the escalation of violence against them. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is you can condemn Quentin for his violence and his racism, and all that stuff, or he doesn't give a shit. He's going to make the movies he's going to make. And I almost always, he has some kind of point in what he's trying to get at. So, uh, how, how about the point of the, uh, Samuel L. Jackson pussy eating scene? Cause, uh, this is a very Quentin Tarantino scene as well. This is this is the yeah. foot massages from Pulp Fiction. This is yeah, he, he does this all the time. It's the it's the it's the crazy juxtaposition of violence and sex. Like he has this crazy sexual monologue mm-hmm. uh, about eating pussy and 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 ass too. Uh, sure. And it's interspaced by you know Gary Oldman taking out his gun and blowing these guys away. Mm-hmm. like that's the thing is like about the, the Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker is he does do that provocative stuff he does you know like uh, the whole time at the end uh, as as uh, Patricia Arquette is like beating and shooting Gandolfini to death the whole time her boobs are just jiggling out of her bra <laughs> everywhere and she's coated right. in blood and her skin is slick and like you can't help but notice how appealing the thing is while it's also horrific and I yeah. think he just thinks that stuff is interesting and, and cool. And, it, you know, oh, yeah. everybody resonates with people. I think he's right. I mean, it's, it's like grindhouse sensibility, right? For sure. Where, you know, the gorier and the sexier you can make your movie, the 
better it's going to do on the straight to VHS copies <laughs> that you sell to a bunch of uh, shut in nerds like Clarence, I guess. And that's the thing that like, sometimes the dialogue's ridiculous just to draw a point of how like it's, it's a way to add some relatability and some banality to this uh, like insane situation that we can't identify with, like getting caught up between DA and the mob and with, with bags of cocaine and all that. But like, you know, we can we can talk, we can relate to an awkward first date like Uma Thurman and uh, John Travolta have and uh, the the. The, the telling of the joke of the, you know, the, the Fox Force 5 stuff. It's like that kind of mm-hmm. grounds it in some kind of relatability. Um, the same way, like that scene with Cousin Balky in the bag of uncut cocaine, <laughs> where he's like, if he just Far. plays it cool and just like, oh, I'm sorry, I was driving like an asshole because my girlfriend is distracted. He goes, he's fine. But yeah. he gets his giant bag out of his suit and he's trying to stuff it down his girlfriend's pants and it just explodes everywhere as the cop <laughs> walks up to you. It's like, it's not, I don't know, because that scene's not funny. It's stupid and ridiculous, but it also makes the rest of the movie happen uh, in exactly the same way as like, I don't know, Uma Thurman mistaking heroin for coke. Like it's that's just like this, this stupid mundane crazy shit that people do when things go wrong propel this Quentin Tarantino stuff forward and uh, I think that's that's interesting I thought that scene was funny uh, I, I thought maybe the baggie the sample bag that they were giving away was a little too big it looked like a lot of cocaine for hey you want to try it before you buy it but wants, okay. he wants to get the full Shivago experience I guess I guess so um but I did. I, I thought that the cop scene with like Tom Sizemore, where these cops are getting—that's the other thing. It's another mistaken thing. Like they are breathlessly reporting this bullshit story that Christian Slater came up about the origin of the coke involving these dirty cops and internal investigation or internal affairs, and you know, like completely getting the story wrong because they're just taking. Yeah, like like on the one hand, the cops are saying like what a lightweight this guy is, not easy is to crack, and he tells. But then they're also saying with a straight face all the things that he said is true, and yeah, I thought that was really funny. The the police, um, and then just how like little they cared about this guy's life. Like they're strapped. He's like, oh, you know, uh, I feel like this bulge in my pants is going to be noticed. But oh no, t- trust me, we do this all the time. You're going to be fine. And how like the cops are clearly willing to say whatever they need to make this case because. Like Christian Slater pulls a gun, is about to Elizabeth's about to blow cousin Balky's brains out in the elevator, and he's begging to be rescued, and it's just <laughs> it's like keep and, it but together. the morons all around. Yeah. The, the cops have no fucking clue what's going on. Christian Slater is just following a hunch, just doing something he's probably seen in a fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Like no one knows what the hell is really going on throughout this entire film, and it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, even the criminals, right? They think this was like some intentional hit I don't, or some intentional like theft of their coke. I don't think so. I think he got the wrong bag. Like the the call girl who he packed said, yeah, hey, so give me the stuff, just assumed he was talking about the coke and handed him a thing. And yeah, the whole yeah. thing is a misunderstanding. No one knows what's yeah. going on. Yeah, and it goes like, like Brad Pitt is channeling the dude from Big Lebowski so hard where it's like, increasingly dangerous people show up and he's just so baked he doesn't even like get like you know he's just yeah. trying to be helpful like yeah man and he it's funny because like you expect him to like give him the bat wrong information but he's always yeah oh yeah they're over at the embassy it's on such and such a street <laughs> right. oh yeah and he's a, 
Like it's, it's I think he's trying to funny. prove that he's he's with it, right? He knows he knows things. Like I I'm not an yeah. idiot, and he's so he's giving yeah. him real information and telling him the right turns and stuff. He's trying to maintain, and that's the Don't other thing is like, me, man, yeah. The 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 <laughs> the the Christian Slater's character is so amped up and wired, and he, in every scene he's drinking like espresso with six tablespoons of sugar in it. Mm-hmm. So he's got that kind of jittery kind of a, he, he is fucking Quentin Tarantino. Sure. He's a self insert because like, if you ever seen Tarantino uh, interviewed about anything, he always seems like he's five Red Bulls into the afternoon. Yeah. And, and maybe a half a eight ball of Coke. He's just mm-hmm. like fired out of a can in these interviews. So like, I felt like that, that, that uh, nervous twitchy uh, energy is, is stuff that uh, Tarantino infused into the film. And it pays off in funny ways, like Cousin Balky, they had set this whole thing about him being uncomfortable with the where they've rigged his microphone, and he can't stop fucking with his crotch the entire, where he's, like, yeah. under intense stress, so he's worried his boss, and he's just constantly jiggling and adjusting his, his crotch. Uh, I thought, I and, thought his, like, ball sweat might have been malfunctioning the mic for a little while, but I think it was just him fiddling with it. Right, right. And there's uh, so many other like unintended consequences. Like the fact is Lee, who's trying, he's, he's just a small time producer, but he's trying, he's hired these gunmen to make him feel important. And now for what, cra- whatever crazy reason, they're wanting to have a standoff with the cops. Like he's paying them. He's like, back, he's like hey, we just hate cops. We're going to, uh, the Tom size. And then the, the shootout. I thought it was filmed mostly as comedy. Like Tom Sizemore's little bullet ballet he does in the middle is is hilarious, I thought. <laughs> and just like it just keeps escalating. Yeah. Like it felt like this this whole scene like like Free Fire that movie uh that we watched a while back um that's essentially just one big shootout that takes place in a parking garage. Yeah. The last like 10 minutes of this movie feels like that entire run where it's like the shootout that like the balance keeps like shifting and who's it's favoring, but then someone else comes in and like, you know, ah, oh, this is for this guy shoots him. And then somebody else comes is pissed off and shoots them. Like people like after the firefight is done, the body count keeps increasing. And I kept on thinking like, holy shit. Uh, it's just going to be Alabama that walks out of the my Rappaport and Alabama. The only people getting out of this thing alive. Yeah. And they even show that like uh what did you think? Because like I guess in the original screenplay, Quentin Tarantino had Clarence die. Mm-hmm. Uh and Tony Scott, like at by by the time he got to the end of this, he's like, I just I just don't feel like that's where the relationship with these characters are in a movie, and he spares them. But like the whole thing is written as if this guy should die. And I don't know if this if the happy ending suits the film exactly. Yeah, I didn't mind it. Um, and, and there, I wonder if the dialogue at the end of that, I mean, it would have to be right. Is an insert saying like, Hey, uh, this, this movie doesn't change much whether you live or die. Right. I'm still here. I'm still doing the same shit. And the, the, Mm. the sadness of you dying fades over time. Like, is that, is that them trying to say like, yeah, we were going to have them die, but you know, what's the difference? Let's have a happy ending. Cause I like it. That is interesting because you're right. Our Arquette's characters ponders that like, you know, he always asks, what would you do if I'd have died? And she's like trying like like in, in a in a weird Donnie Darko way, trying to perceive this alternate future. Yeah, that she avoided and in a very yeah, like sort of honest way to uh-huh. like, yeah, yeah, I would be sad, but eventually I'd get over it. That kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that that line 
that dialogue had to be inserted when they changed the ending. Because if he dies, you don't have that. So, yeah, they, they must have been doing something cheeky with that. Do you have anything else you want to talk about, or should we get to Dina's uh, commentary? Um, I just have like a lot of little things that I wanted to point out. Is there is Did there it? any connection between Elliot Blitzer and Elliot Spitzer? Because that's immediately what I mean. I know this is a long time ago. This is like wait, who is it? Who's Elliot Blitzer versus? Uh, Elliot Blitzer is is uh, shit. Balky's character. Elliot Spitzer oh, really? is like a senator, right? Didn't he get into some no, like, he's like big the controversy? He, 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 he or was like uh, some uh, the, gov- the governor of New York. Uh, th- I think I think okay. he got canceled twice for like <laughs> sending lewds to people. Yes. Okay. I I don't think it has anything to do with him because I don't think he was in the spotlight much around that time. So plus, plus apparently this was all like Quentin, or this is all the 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 these producer characters were all things that. Uh, Scott adapted into the screenplay from his experiences with unpleasant film producers. Gotcha. Um, so this is like where like Quentin Tarantino is just getting started with the Hollywood bullshit. This is a long vet who's had enough and I guess this was like uh, essentially a pastiche of one particular, I guess it wouldn't be as pastiche. It's it's a it's a dead on kind of yeah. kind of the way that uh, you know, Dr. Evil and Austin Powers is essentially uh, Lorne Michaels. Like this is a, a, a real life movie, movie producer, and I think this guy's his assistant. So yeah. probably not. Okay. Probably not. Gotcha. Um, the other thing that struck me as really strange in this movie is the place where Christian Slater's dad, Dennis Hopper, lives. He lives like between a there's there's like a fifty foot span between a train track and some body of water. And he lives in that. And it's such a weird place. He's living in like a trailer that's just kind of set there, right? It almost feels like he's just off the docks or something, um, like the mm. port. It, it, it's such a strange place to live. And then they make the claim Who that he has what? neighbors. Dennis Hopper? Oh, okay. He's, I thought you were talking about uh, Christian Slater. No, he lives like out that, no, in a billboard. <laughs> right and, yeah no no i think i think his childhood uh or or living near heavy transportation runs in the family or something because he t- mm. then christian slater later tells patricia arquette about how he used to live next to an airport i'm like these people right. choose the worst places to live and i don't know if they they're destitute and they have to do that although his yeah, dad was a cop like... for a long time i cops yeah, salaries aren't that bad yeah, especially back then, and can but but I don't know because like the thing is is his dad's also like what happened to their mom? Did her mom leave him or did her mom die? Because there was a whole bunch of like kind of like loosely uh, sketched tragedy, like you know something happened to the mom, and then the dad kind of checked out, and Christian Slater's yeah. kind of left to, to to raise himself. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's they're trying to sell the. I think I think Tarantino's going for like a real blue collar up for sure. You know, like working class. Like you can't get much more of that than like your dad lives in a trailer at the docks. <laughs> right. You, know, you, you, you grew live up in the airport. Yeah, you grew up a seven forty seven rum, rumbling the rafters over your head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This the family is just sleep deprived, which makes them crazy. Apparently, one of the things that really struck me especially after I learned who directed this movie is how exactly the love scene in this mirrors the love scene in Top Gun. 
it's it's crazy it is a one-to-one direct translation of that to this movie does ridley scott just have a binder that says sex scene and it's like hey here's the moves kids here's the moves i gotta get this he might and then he like handed it to his brother tony and said you go with this i don't know uh no, Tom, this guy made both Top Gun and this movie. It's the same Scott brother. Oh, uh-huh, yeah, Tony. You said Ridley. Sorry. I- oh. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do that sometimes. Um, but yeah, it, yeah it's maybe wild. It's wild. Light, it's his the own- silhouettes, the, the exact, exact shots, like leaning down to kiss someone who's laying on the bed. Yeah, it's wild. It's one to one, man. I guess it would like, yeah, if you're if you had to direct a bunch of different sex scenes and different movies separated by decades, like, yeah, I mean, it's like shooting a car chase. There's only so many ways you can do it, you know, so many different angles you can cut through. It's like this is an act we all know. And uh, we got to skirt around the Americans uh, uh, twin fascination and aversion to sex in movies. So Mm -hmm. but that's uh, that's pretty funny. He remade his own sex scene. Apparently. All right, well, let's get to Dina's commentary. They uh, submitted a couple of things for us to ponder. They say Tarantino said a Sicilian speech is the best thing he ever wrote until the hateful eight. What do you all think about the scene? I love it and I'm half Sicilian, but could you make this scene today? Tarantino does love his white dudes gleefully using the N word. Um, most of the time when people ask the question if something could be made today, the answer is almost always yes. Like, or if you couldn't make, um, well, if you if you could make blazing saddles today, it's not because people are too sensitive. It's just that the the point has been that that was originally brilliantly made in blazing saddles has just been fucking belabored. You know, at this point, like you're not saying anything new or original. You're just aping a 50 year old movie. So like and the thing is, is like, yeah, you can still make this because Quentin Tarantino does the scene in almost every one of his movies. Yeah. You know, um, he likes giving uh, low class bad people these, you know, racial affectations just so you kind of know that they're really from the streets or they're really from this or, you know, there's something he says something about the relation of like jewels and this character that in Pulp Fiction by the fact that, you know, he's willing to be free with the N word around this very dangerous person. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, um, but also it's like. the other element there is like is you know like dennis hopper is his is his old cop character racist probably is he this racist i don't know uh it's 100 percent that walken is racist or he wouldn't be offended by any of this shit so there's an intentionality to the racism certainly um in this scene does it cross the line like and and you know i mentioned authorial intent at the very beginning right i i don't know how I'm sure Tarantino at this point is aware that these scenes are read by many as just being straight up racist uh, and assuming that the author is racist as well. At this point, you're saying in 93 or are you talking about like present? No, now today. Okay. okay, He he obviously has to know that that's how his works are interpreted by some. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know. There is a line there and without like the author's commentary on it, I don't know if I'm comfortable commenting on it. I'm actually surprised. I, I'm actually surprised that, um, cause I kind of thought that Quentin did this to be edgy and there's a lot of that to it for sure. You yeah. know, 
but even this in his earlier works, like there is that current of, yes, this is all racist and all that, but it also only works in this context as an antagonism to someone who's already deeply racist. Right. Right. Yeah. So like if you're triggering a mafia guy with, with a, a racist tirade, are you being, so like I said, it's he like, ever I was actually opposite? surprised that it wasn't just like, oh, just inward, 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 inward. Ha ha. I'm so edgy inward. Because there's a little bit of that yeah, with yeah. Gary Oldman playing For sure. the, yeah, the white, white guy boy who thinks, thinks he's, he's black. black or one fifth cherry or whatever the hell he is. Yeah. What, did yeah. You, what were you saying? Uh, has he ever done the opposite? Has he ever done uh, the, the scene where it just doesn't work on the person, the, the racial uh, yeah, language is targeted I, at. I don't know. I or like I was trying to think if he does some of this racially charged dialogue that's ever not like a point of you know, like what community a person identifies with or like their level of class or couth because there's some. I think he has Nazis using racist language to kind of like bang home like the difference between I don't know. I don't know what you want. That's the thing. It's like I don't know how you talk about Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction character. Like, yeah. is that affectionate racism? You know, like Are you talking uh, specifically about John Travolta or no, I'm talking about his coffee swilling, you know, oh, married oh, to his, yes, a, yes. A, a, a black nurse, uh, right. you know, like there's all there's like I said, there's always confounding elements to it. And I think, yeah, some of it is about being edgy. And also part of being edgy is like when people call you as like, what is this? You were writing a bunch of inward stuff. You can you come back with that. Well, you know, actually, this is saying something. And you can like outflank them by anticipating it. Like I could see like mm-hmm. someone saying like, how in the world can you have this racist tirade between two white men in a movie? And he'd be like, well, you know, it only works if it only works on targets that are racist. Like it, it seems like he kind of baits some of these discussions to see if, uh, you know, you can really nail them on it. I, but I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Cause it's also a, I don't know what, age he would have been at the time but he was a much younger man and this was obviously a different era but like you wonder how much of this is conscious in his early works because this is one of his earliest right yeah Um, the the discussion specifically around his work hadn't gotten out there yet um Mm -hmm. and i think he he spurred a lot of that in the mid 90s right so like is he is he writing this mostly to be edgy or is he writing this knowing the conversations that will happen after his next works like pulp fiction right like that's, that's a good question i don't also know. gets a little confusing uh so the dina says who is your favorite minor character there's so many good ones especially brad pitt's floyd i read that he improvised <laughs> most of his lines i saw that too uh, the scene where Floyd offers the mafiosa guys a bowl before he gives them directions to the hotel might be my favorite of the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, Brad Pitt's pretty good. I kept expecting him to be more of a thing than just the couch locked, uh, dope smoking, you know, kind of Hollywood ride on. But he never did. Yeah, but he was really I mean, funny at that. He's not like reminiscent. Go ahead. He He's not Brad Pitt, the big ass movie star yet. Right. Like he's. He hasn't done seven. He hasn't done interview with a vampire. He hasn't done any of the things that will like put him as like a Hollywood staple yet. I, I know he's done star, some yeah. stuff. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And he was getting a name, but he's not the big star that we think, oh, fuck, Brad Pitt's in this. He, right. he was just like a dude in a movie, kind of, although he was a bit of a star. So, yeah, I guess I was looking for him to be more. But when I went and like researched what is the timeline on this? 
it made right. a lot more sense why he wasn't a bigger part of this movie or the movie didn't expand on his character. Yeah, he had so far only really gotten like Thelma and Louise and a river runs through it were kind of his like, or, yeah. you know, and uh, he didn't break out to like interview the vampire seven. Yeah. 12 yeah. Monkeys, then he just yeah. got huge fight club. But... Yeah. There's a, there's a bunch snap. He, he gets, he had explodes right after this movie, mm-hmm. but it's funny because like, I felt like this gear that he was in reminded me a lot of his burn after reading like, you yeah, know, vacuous sure. airhead roles that kind of like, you know, like just, just blank affable look on his face. Um, just the burn after reading guy is more motivated, right? A little, a little bit, but he's mostly <laughs> motivated bit. by the, uh, the, uh, the, the lady that's wanting all the work done. Yeah. Like his own thing. He's just kind of vibing. He's, he's a Biden, <laughs> vibing and abiding. <laughs> he is. Like I said, that's, and I already drew a connection to the dude. So there you go. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, speaking of minorish characters, what's up with Drexel? Gary Oldman said he has two favorite roles he's ever played. Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK and a scary white pimp who thinks he's black at the beginning of this movie. And now, Jim, you've seen both of these roles. I have. Um, this is my favorite character of the movie. My favorite minor character. I think that. It's hard to tell guys like Gary Oldman because like. Does he have like, because you get these questions asked all the time and, you know, like, you know, what's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? And I wonder if people like just get like, do do they ever like pre think of like answers to these questions? Like, oh, what's the funniest thing I can say? Like, oh, what if I tell them Zorg and Drexel and I'll fucking blow their minds, right? I played Dracula. I played, I played uh, Churchill. I played, I'm just going to go with these crusty barnacle and, you know, like just (laughs) these weirdo things. Yeah. Um, because like if he just says, oh, uh, you know, I'm playing Churchill, it can't get better than that. Like that's kind of like everybody kind of is like, ah. Oh. But if you say something weird like, oh yeah, the dreadlock pimp I played in this weird Tarantino movie from '93, that's exciting. But I could also see him, you know, like these roles, those roles feel like he was well, maybe not the Lee Harvey Oswald, but like like the character that he could just do whatever he wanted with, mm-hmm. you know, like you know Ridley Scott or uh, Tony Scott's like, yeah, fucking do it. Uh, maybe he likes that, the stuff versus the things where, you know, he's, he's called on to kind of like, you know, like, like be a big linchpin of the only unacceptable answer when Gary Oldman is asked, what's your favorite character is the one he played in planet of the apes. (laughs) The only unacceptable. No, no bullshit, man. Pick a different one. Was he in planet of the apes? Which, which one one are we talking about? The sequel, like Marky Mark or really? Yeah. One of the sequels. Was he a monkey? It, It wasn't the Marky Mark ones. It was the James Franco ones. Um, Oh, but not that was first he a monkey one, or think. no, like he was the humans. Human. Okay. How do you think this movie might have been different if Tarantino directed it instead of Tony Scott? Big change had definitely been the ending. The original script that Clarence died at the end. So it's definitely darker and less romantic. Um, although mm-hmm. brief detour, this movie, true romance, I think is definitely in the Anne of green Gables for, you know, the, the idea of things being romantic, like, and and oh, his yeah. death, his death, I think, actually works a little bit better with the overall motifs of this film and uh, how like the heightened emotion and like not not much in the way of like rational thought underpinning things. If if he did die rather than becoming a nuclear family at the end, um, I suppose so. But yeah, it had been a darker, darker, moodier film at the end. Um, the soundtrack would have been. 
like an active help to the movie rather than a fucking hindrance because i again i can't i can't i can't i can't tell you how bad this tarzan junk this uh tarzan jungle book uh uh, what'd you call it? Lion King. Mm-hmm. This Lion King soundtrack fits under so much of this grim shit that they're doing. This emotionally wrought shit. It's terrible. Yeah, it's bad. I, I, I think the, um, you know, if, if he dies at the end, it reinforces a lot of the themes that the movie had going up until then. Like this, this live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the end of this movie kind of undercuts that he's kind of supposed to die at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that's from like a romantic perspective, I think. Um, yes, that, yeah, that whole philosophy is extremely right, romantic, right? It's, it's a, a fictionalized reality, um, or a, a specific way of looking at the world. That's very romantic. I, I think, yes, it does undercut it a little bit. I didn't mind it cause it doesn't, it doesn't ruin it. It's just not as on theme with the rest of the stuff. Yeah. I mean, their whole relationship reminds me of kind of like, uh, 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 a version of like the Joker and uh, 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 uh fucking uh, Harley Quinn. Like this is like sure. a real life version yeah. of that, where like they just don't know what the fuck they're doing, and they go from one thing to another, and they just kind of serve. <laughs> but like it, they reminded me a lot of of that. I guess it's got that's the natural born killers kind of vibe for sure. Um, and I think some of the dialogue, some of the narration at the end, um with like a nihilistic sort of carefree attitude about the future. Like, Hey, if you die, I'd be sad for a while, but then I'd live a life just like I'm living now. I, I think mm-hmm. that gets a little bit of that feeling of romance back in. Cause that's mm-hmm. a strange perverted sort of romance too. Right. Yeah. It's like an anti-romance. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, you know, didn't uh, you aren't the love of my life. And there's a, there's, I'd, I'd have been happy with somebody, you know? Yeah. Um, like things will turn out the way, like just being carefree, you know? Um, Right. There's kind of a romance to that. So I, I think they tried to keep the tone of the ending similar while not having them die. I, it doesn't work as well, I think, as if he had died, but it's fine. Which, bring, which brings us to uh, one of the final points. Alabama, a bit of a problem. The only female character is basically an empty vessel without agency, just full of love and good attentions. There are several scenes where she quietly just stands back, smiles and let the men talk. Patricia Arquette is so charismatic and adorable. She pulls it off. But what do you think? Um, yeah, I largely I worried agree. about that till the last act because whatever lack of agent she had, she, she definitely stood up for the, you know, the course of the action. Um, you know, like she took a fucking beating from Gandolfini and ended up uh, out, out Gandal Gandolfini him. Yeah, uh, I, I was worried. Like this whole scene, I'm thinking, oh God, Christian Slater's going to come back. He's going to save her. He's going to like shoot this guy in the head at the last moment, just in time. That didn't happen. And then that's kind of saves that scene for me. Cause if she yeah. was just totally passive that entire time and just took the beating, especially since they've kept juxtaposing her taking this beating for him and he's just fucking around, literally right. just fucking around. And you're like, man, you you're know, on a clock here. Come on. Getting, getting, yeah. And he's, he's completely oblivious, which, which did a lot right. to up, up the tension of the scene. But, but yeah, the fact that she ended up saving herself, uh, yeah. I think it, and saving him in the end, right? Like gets him out of that hotel room, uh, yeah. down the Especially stairs, from a film out to the 30 beach. years ago. That's pretty, like I said, you can see the, 
you can see the early Uma Thurman kind of role in in this, yeah. you know, that that like finally matured into a Kill Bill, where it's like you know you just had this the like the ultimate killing machine on the planet is this uh, live young woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so like yeah, him him playing with that, uh, you know, subverting the the violence against women tropes. Um, because yeah, you think this is just going to be just she's just going to get the shit beat out of her, and he's going to get back, and she's going to die in his arms. Or it's going to be too late, or whatever. Or he's going to be, you know, either way, she gets saved from some fate and it doesn't happen. So, like, yeah. yeah. And again, like I said, that that's I don't think the movie earns that because you're right. This woman is playing as like a literal, like empty vessel wish fulfillment for the man in, in the movie, you know, for the um, most part. Yeah. But they do kind of save it at the end there a little bit. And then finally, how do you rank the final mob cop bodyguard scene among the best movie shootouts and gunfights? Uh <laughs> I, it, it's it's just like any anything a comedy it it it's slightly undercut like it's like saying like oh the heat shoot out imagine if that was a farce yeah imagine if that was uh <laughs> if they know, had the Zemeckis. lion king tarzan soundtrack playing over it right yeah and it's just like it's like it's supposed, supposed to be funny that the people keep shooting and dying like mm. it's hard it is you know like the the thing about quentin tarantino violence is you never have seen anything like it right like sure. the glorious bastards hosing down Hitler and his dudes in an exploding movie theater. You've never seen shit like that. The whole shootout at the Candyland ranch. You've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, what happens with Bruce Willis at the end of Pulp Fiction with the gimp suit and all that, like, you know, like just ju- yeah. juxtaposition of sex and violence and kink in ways that are shot like the crazy 88 fight and but like he, he, likes pushing those limits mm-hmm. um, to where it's kind of like a weird disappointment when he makes something like the hateful eight, which is so reserved and, you know, not that. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, he, he's got a way of um, taking those old uh, films and getting uh, injecting even more style than they have. I, I don't know. He polishes up the, the sex and the violence in those old you know, exploitation films from the era. That That's a good point. He takes movies that, you know, 99 out of a hundred people haven't seen from other cultures and eras and budgets, and then gives them a slick kind of Hollywood and then plugs them yeah. into his overall work. That's got superior dialogue and, mm-hmm. you know, disjointed. It's yeah. He's a remix artist is what he is. And know, he's very from, good. And that's, that's totally valid way to make movies. I don't, I don't want to like disparage oh. him by saying he's a remix artist. He's he's yeah. great at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is great, and he's a he's a cinematographer in his own right at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. like, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, above everything else, is a beautiful film. Well, Dina, thank you for uh, working with us to pick this film. It was a lot of fun to watch. It's a lot of fun to talk about. I hope you enjoyed the the podcast that you commissioned. Uh, if everybody else out there would like to do like Dina did. Uh, it's really easy. If you want us to talk about uh, two-ish hours of your favorite content, it could be a movie, could be a TV series, uh, can be a video game. Uh, someone's just recently pitched us an album concept. Uh, whatever it is, we'll work with you to make sure that you, uh, as, as as much as it is in our power to do so, that you're going to be happy. Some people uh, commission a movie that they love from their childhood that they know is bad, and they're like, hey, rip it apart if you want to. Do whatever. Yeah. Uh, so whatever you're looking for, we'll try to, we'll try to make sure, uh, you're happy with it. Uh, support topallmove.com. Check the commission of uh, podcast link out. And, uh, that's how you commission a podcast. 
that's it for this week on the old uh, prestige feed. We'll be back next week with another uh, movie. I'm not sure if it's commissioned or not, but uh, whatever it is, uh, it's going to be prestigious. It's going to be not involving Jedi's or ghosts or aliens. Probably unless it's a Kubrick <laughs> film. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we'll, 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 we'll check back next week until then. I'm Aaron and I'm Jim. See ya.